Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by a repeat guest and one of my favorites, Josh Barber. Josh joined us in the very beginning for one of our early episodes at a time when we were still working out all the kinks and has been kind enough to come back multiple times. Josh is a research analyst at Diamond Hill focused on REITs, title and mortgage insurance, and is a wealth of sports knowledge and trivia. Josh has been with Diamond Hill since 2015, and prior to joining the firm, worked at Stiefel Nicholas in HDI Capital. He received both his bachelor's degree and master's degree in Talmudic law from Nair Israel Rabbinical College and his MBA from the University of Baltimore. Josh has joined me today to discuss his most recent industry perspectives, examining the emergence of timber real estate investment trusts or REITs and their place amongst the REIT industry. You can find Josh's piece on our website, www.diamond-hill.com, along with other pieces from a variety of analysts and portfolio managers. Josh has always been remote, being based in Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm fluctuating between home and the office in downtown Columbus, so we're recording this via Zoom, and I ask for your patience for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Josh Barton. Josh, welcome back once more to the podcast. We're headed into earnings season for your company, so I'm glad that you were able to, to carve out some time to discuss your new industry perspectives. Thanks for having me, Doug. You've covered real estate at Diamond Hill for nearly seven years, focusing on firms ranging from storage companies to commercial real estate companies. For listeners that may not be as familiar as others with the REIT industry, can you give me just a high-level breakdown of what exactly a REIT is and why you think they're an interesting investment choice? REITs basically are a tax pass-through in the sense of, you know, that's there for, they're similar to the MLP type structure. And to qualify as a REIT, you have to own real property and generate most of your income and own most of your assets as real property, and which has been a broadening definition. But essentially, in exchange for not paying corporate tax, the entity has to distribute 90% of its taxable earnings in the form of a dividend. So, you know, they, they differ from classic stocks in several senses. But you know, the, the most notable one would be, because of that, REITs don't get to retain the majority of their cash flow. They have to pay it out as a dividend. REITs also are not as subject to corporate taxation and changes in those rules. So if corporate taxes were to go up in the next couple of years, REITs would probably be a beneficiary because their earnings wouldn't get hurt. But when you had the Tax Cut you know, Act of 2017 that passed, you know, which was very beneficial for a lot of stocks, it didn't make one iota of a difference to the REITs because they weren't paying taxes anyway. Um, I think you know, when, when it comes to why are they an interesting investment choice, REITs don't differ all that much from if you have a REOX or real estate operating you know, company, or if there's just a C corporation that decides to own a lot of real estate as their assets, and maybe they have some tax loss carry forwards or other things that prevent them from paying corporate taxes. In the form of operating their business, there's very little, if, if no difference, right? If you own an apartment building through a C corporation or you own it through a REIT, you're going to operate it the same way. And that's to maximize your cash flow over time and to make sure that it's a good competitive asset it, 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 within its market and its submarket. But, you know, the difference would be at the corporate level where if you were a C corporation with a, you know, a substantial tax loss carry forward and you could retain a lot of your cash flow, you can grow organically by retaining that cash flow. You probably worry less about your leverage. When it comes to REITs, they tend to be a little bit more capital market centric. 
um, simply because if they want to grow externally, they have to issue new equity and you know probably new debt. But you know it's the equity that makes them probably a little bit more fixated on their stock prices than other companies you know would be who would be able to just harvest their own cash flow. I think most people use REITs. You know, REITs kind of occupy an interesting um, niche simply because of their real estate element, less their tax structure characteristics within the equity universe, which is. They're kind of like equities, but they're kind of like bonds because they do generally have contractual cash flow streams backing those properties. Some of them might be really long, like in the case of a net lease property where you might have 10 to 12 years of average lease duration. Some might be like storage properties or hotel assets where you have daily or monthly leases. But the nature of commercial property tends to lend itself towards longer duration, steadier cash flow. And you know, so that, that that probably makes them somewhat between a hybrid of equity and fixed income. You know, it, it, within the Venn diagram, I guess somewhere between equity risk and fixed income risk is where REITs are. They, they probably don't have as much upside in any given year, but you tend to have steady, solid growth across the better REITs. Um, and the ones who are there are very mindful of the fact that they are more dependent on capital markets than others, and tend to be very proactively low leveraged. So it's not one of those where right now your balance sheet's okay, but if you take a hit, your balance sheet might look a little funkier. It's even if things go a little bit sideways, your balance sheet's still in a pretty good, it's still in a pretty good spot. And I think that's just true. You know, th there's obviously sectors that are different um, within the REIT world, but I think that's true broadly of, of of the REIT sector. You mentioned different types of REITs, and so you cover the full range uh, as part of your responsibilities. Your paper this month focuses on timber REITs a part of the market that doesn't fall into the classic category of REITs, such as offices, warehouses, or apartments. So talk to me about how these REITs, the timber REITs, differ from the more traditional REITs like commercial real estate. Like you mentioned, when, when REITs started off, actually, the original REITs were actually mortgage REITs, but you know, the classic commercial property when the REIT, moderniza when the REIT modernization era started in 91, 92, were the, you know, the, what we call the big four food groups. So that would be office buildings, apartments, warehouses, and retail, which would be enclosed, mal enclosed malls and also open air strip centers. Um, gradually, the REIT industry has grown. And even, you know, there are non-traditional property types that have become pretty well accepted. So self-storage, healthcare, data centers, even sectors like net lease, which typically own classic commercial properties, but under various different lease structures, are now really part of the REIT mainstream. Um, I think timber REITs just occupy a very different niche because they are, you know, you, you don't have long duration cash flows when it comes to them, right? You cut down the trees or you don't cut down the trees. Um, there's no, you know, long-term income stores that's outside of, you know, maybe mineral leases. Um, and it is a natural resource, right? So on a commercial property, if you don't lease this hotel room tonight, you've lost that revenue and you can't get it back. Maybe you can charge more the next night, but you've probably on the whole come out worse. If you have a tree and you want to let it grow, maybe you don't harvest it this year, you'll harvest it next year and still get the same revenue, maybe better. So, you know, the, the, the fact that it's a natural resource just makes it really, really different. I, I think also that, what, you know, one of the bigger factors that's there is the, the, the derivative, you know, that, that drives its business. So, you know, REITs are generally thought of as a monolithic type of industry. Uh, you, know, what, you know, what's going on in the REIT world? And, you know, what could be good for the REIT sector? And I always say that you know, REITs really just mimic the economy, that there are some sectors of REITs that are very defensive, and there are some sectors of REITs that could be very offensive, is probably not the right way to put it, but very economically levered. You know, so, so sectors like hotels, on the one hand, you know, are very, very sensitive to changes in the economy. 
in 2020, obviously it was a really tough year to be a hotel REIT, but it was a pretty good year to be a net lease REIT because your leases are, you're 99 plus percent occupied. Most of your tenants are going to be investment grade or better. You were still collecting probably 90 plus percent of your rent to begin with. And that was even for companies that were having a hard time. And essentially all of your cash flow was still coming through because you had, you have very long-term you know, leases to otherwise solid credits. So, you know, you can have two sectors that are on completely different sides of the spectrum. The classic example would be malls and warehouses, right? What's been good for warehouses over the last six to seven years, which is the massive rise of e-commerce, um, has been terrible for malls because now people aren't going and shopping in malls anymore. So you could have sectors that are, you know, sometimes just diametrically opposed to each other in terms of fundamentals. When it comes to timber REITs, they are probably the only sector within REITs though that's really levered to new home construction. Um, technically, you do have um, apartment REITs and single family REITs and others that have, you know, exposure to what's going on in residential markets. So household formation and um, occupancy levels, supply and demand, which is always going to be a factor, of course. Um, but new home construction is not really something that's big in the, in, in the REIT world. There's a lot of commercial type property. Um, and even when you have residential, it's mostly going to be rent. The classic driver of timber REITs is going to be construction activity because most of the value that comes from harvesting timberland is going to be used for new home construction or repair and remodel type markets. So there, there isn't too much of that. And I think it's just been those, the, you know, those two factors that have made timber REITs probably a little bit more of a black sheep among the REIT sectors than even some of the others who have kind of come to be seen as a classic REIT sector, you know, so data centers or, you know, healthcare and self-storage like, like, like we talked about before, um, which are, you know, very different and have more technology type of risk, uh, like cell towers or data centers. Um, but, you know, timber REITs, I think um, they're also a smaller sector. There's only four companies. Um, the market cap is not particularly large, although it's not insignificant either. So they've kind of occupied this hybrid spot between their natural resource exposure and you know, what powers their business is going to be a very different set of factors than what, than what typically powers uh, regular commercial real estate. So something we talked about the last time you were on uh, was the pine beetle infestation in British Columbia and the Canadians' efforts to combat this issue. In this piece, uh, this industry perspectives piece, you also reference a bark beetle epidemic that is impacting Europe. Both of these infestations have buoyed the US lumber industry, but it raises the issue of how impactful nature can be on this industry. You know, how does the industry attempt to combat events like those that have occurred in Canada and Europe? And you know, what are your concerns about something like that happening to the US lumber industry? Yeah, you really have to be very concerned about that. Um, I do think, um, certainly when it comes to Canada, there were some unique factors. You know, the unique factors there was you had um, very similar ages of, of all the stands across British Columbia, and that had to do with the forest fire that was in the 1920s and 1930s that wiped out a huge part of the British Columbia timber stock. So you, had, you, you ended up having pretty uniform ages and stands across there, and that made older trees much more susceptible to the beetles. Um, in Europe also, you tend to have older growth forests that are there, more restrictions. It's probably pretty similar to what the U.S. Pacific Northwest looks like in terms of harvest restrictions. And when you have older growth forests that don't have active management, you tend to run a higher risk. When it comes to actual supply demand drivers, I think the European bark beetle is a much, much less impactful thing for U.S. logs and lumber than the Canadian pine beetle. 
And that's because the US and, and, and Canada had, I don't want to say a pretty integrated system, but there's a, it's a lot easier to trade those sorts of products, especially finished lumber. And you know, so so having Canada lose, you know, or British Columbia, which is Canada's largest log producing area, losing you know 30 to 50 percent of its log supply, and that would be in place for several decades, you know, that harvest restriction, you know, almost all that demand just shifts automatically to the U.S. The European market, there, there has not been historically huge levels of lumber and certainly not log trades between the U.S. and Europe. I think Europe now is starting to ramp up their efforts in, in, in terms of foreign log and lumber exports. But, you know, that's Russian logs, that's Chinese lumber, that's Australian and New Zealand. And it's, and it's from Brazil. It's from the U.S. You know, the, the, the North American lumber, you know, picture and log picture is much, much more impacted by the Canadian pine beetle than it is from the European bark beetle. You know, anywhere you go will have beetle risk, nature risk, fire risk, and, and you can't hedge that out. It's impossible. Most companies actually don't even take insurance for those sorts of things, because if you end up insuring for every risk that's out there, you end up with about a 1% return on assets. So, you know, you have to just take some risk when it comes to that. When you're actively managing forests, though, you can find a beetle in a stand of timber or something. The key is isolating it to that particular stand. So active forest management or making sure that there's you know, a, a appropriate fire roads, um, rotation of stands, rotation of ages, and consistent monitoring for those sorts of things, where if you do come across beetle-infested timber, you can do a clear cut and then monitor the area around there to make sure that that's not going to spread. Um, and I think in places like, especially in the U.S. South, but even in the Pacific Northwest, where you do have extremely active forest management and very good what's known as silviculture practices, um, everybody there is really, really on guard for those sorts of things. And it's unavoidable. The bottom line is it's absolutely unavoidable. The question is just how you mitigate it. And I think in privately owned forests where you really have lots of active management going on because that's what they're incented to do, they're going to be much more on guard for those sorts of events. And it tends to contain a lot of that damage. Um, I mean, look, there's beetles all over, right? There's the ash borer beetle, and you know, there's a lot more here than we ever wanted to know about. Um, but you want, you know, as, as long as the forests are generally actively managed, um, you can probably contain a lot of that. But that's not to say that, you know, it's impossible for those sorts of things to happen. So Josh, everyone's talking about inflation, whether it's transitory, how it's impacting wages and the cost of goods, et cetera. So how can inflation impact the timber industry? And has the industry begun to feel any pain from inflation? So I don't think that, that, that they've seen it very much. I mean, every industry in the last you know, 18 months has, has been impacted by it, but I think that's been more labor availability and you know, the cost of that labor. It's important, I think, here to distinguish between timber, which is the actual harvesting of the logs, and lumber, which is going to be the processing. And that would include plywood, OSB, all sorts of other you know, finished wood products. And the wood products manufacturing side itself is extremely labor intensive. You need to have a mill, you need to have workers to run that mill, and you know, th th there's a lot that's there. So the operating leverage that in that business is very, very high, but the overhead costs are also very high. So if there's going to be wage inflation, it's going to be much more impactful, I think, on the wood product side. And because those are commodity products in the end, they tend to have less pricing power in an inflationary environment. I think that they'll probably still be able to appreciate. We've seen lumber prices, you know, when we talked last on the podcast, it was about how crazy the price of lumber was going. And I think we pretty much top tick the price of lumber by talking about that. <laughs> so, um, you know, so, but a lot of what was happening there, as we discussed, was more driven by, I think, labor availability 
and people just shutting down various different plants and a swing supply, if you will, not being able to respond to a sudden upsurge in demand. But you know, over time, certainly on the wood product side, there is excess capacity, certainly in the US South. And you know, it, it is a business that tends to pay, I think, a decent wage. So you know, whether or not the labor availability is there in smaller mill towns is a very, very valid question. But you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the wage costs and more importantly, the log costs are going to be very, very big factors to you know, what's happening there. So you know, in short, the wood product side probably is less well positioned to deal with inflation. The timber side, meaning actual owning of the timberland, is a pretty low operating leverage business, right? You need to maintain those, you know, th those stands and do silviculture and those sorts of things, but you don't need 20 people working in that forest every single day. And if you're not cutting down the stand for another three to four years, you need just a little bit of TLC. Um, and, you know, that's pretty much, you know, it. You need a higher logging and, you know, logging crews and, 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 and those do that. And we'll touch on that in a second. But um, in terms of the actual impact from inflation itself, it's much less labor sensitive in general. Logs and timberlands are, are usually seen as good inflation hedges because you would expect things like the natural resources to appreciate at or above the rate of inflation. So you can sort of mark your logs to market on a daily basis if inflation is actually picking up. Um, and then your land itself tends to appreciate with that, you know, with, with, with inflation, as do pretty much all hard assets. In this case, the hard asset is great because it requires very, very little capex. So if you have a hard asset that, that's appreciating, but the cost of taking care of that asset is going up also, it's not clear necessarily, let's say on a classic commercial property, that you're that much better off in an inflationary world. Whereas in something like timber, where your cost of actually maintaining that timberland is very, very low, it should actually do really, really well in an inflationary type of environment. Um, there have been some concerns, uh, you know, kicking around the timber industry for a long time, though, and that's been the logging crews because most of those are smaller, independent, family-owned type operators. And that's a business where you've seen net outflows of people for probably the last you know, 12 or 13 years, pretty much since 2007, 2008. Like we discussed on the last podcast, there was sort of a sea change in that business after the great financial crisis and the great recession, because the entire housing supply, you know, just everywhere across that, um, that you know, the, the housing value chain, if you will, had labor that just went into different businesses. If you were a housing contractor or a logger or somebody and your business changed so dramatically between 2006 and 2009, at some point, and, and didn't recover, I think at some point a lot of people just said, why don't we just pack it up and do something else? Something that has a little bit steadier work, something that, you know, pro, you know and certainly when it comes to logging has a lot less risk to it. You know, there, there is concerns over labor availability and labor costs. I think the timber REITs in particular are much better positioned than other competitors simply because of their size and scale. So when you own several million acres across a region, you are constantly, you know, the, you're constantly harvesting something every year. You know, you don't want to harvest too much of your acres in any year, but they're pretty smart about making sure that they rotate their stands accurately and in line with, you know, the tree life. So they're the ones who are, you know, they're the ones who have been supplying consistent work over the last 12 to 13 years, they're the ones who are going to be best positioned for, to get extra work and to get extra crews because crews can rely on them for pretty regular work. I think when it comes to, you know, they, you know, they, they call them college harvests where somebody will do it and plant their trees and then harvest the trees when their kids are going off to college. Um, but if you're only calling the logging crew once every 18 to 20 years, you know, they're probably not gonna put you at the front of the line when it comes to harvesting your timber. 
So, you know, there are concerns. I do think that the REITs are probably a little bit better positioned um, than some others when it comes to those challenges. So another area of focus in the investment industry, you know, you've got inflation that people are talking about, but another area is ESG or environment, social and governance awareness, how investors can shift their portfolios in such a way as to be aware of and contribute to these areas. How does the rising interest in ESG investing actually benefit these timber REITs and place them in a prime position to benefit from this ongoing trend? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, it, it's pretty funny and it's certainly an irony that's not lost on old timber industry veterans, of which I am not, obviously. But, you know, to, to those who went through those battles in the late 80s and early 90s across, you know, for forestry, where you had the environmental groups battling the forest industry, um, <clears throat> it's definitely an irony that, um, you know, exists that suddenly the environmental groups are partnering with timber. But I think a lot of them have recognized that having the carbon capture with, you know, in, in, in the forest and have that be, having that be a renewable resource is valuable on, on, on two levels. Number one, you know, having the forest itself that exists, and I'm not nearly enough of an expert on this or, you know, even educated enough on, on this to know, you know, how actively you have to manage the forest. You know, is it better to have a tree that grows for 50 years versus 25 that's consistently recycled? But, you know, at the very least, it's a pretty good thing for the environment to have additional forest land and um, ones that are actively managed, you know, to make sure that, you know, they're sustainable really over the long term, rather than just saying, oh, well, let's have an old growth forest and then <clears throat> have a problem with that in 50 years from now. So there's definitely a benefit to that. And you've had things like the SFI, the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, which virtually every large timber owner is a, is a signatory to and, and, and certified under, where they make sure that all of their forest practices, and this is going back, you know, 20 plus years, you know, are approved under the SFI and other sustainable initiatives. Them at least shaking hands with the environmentalists and having a more sustainable approach to that has been something that's going on for a really long time. The environmentalists also recognizing that there is a need for additional forest cover and that that's a very good thing for the planet broadly in terms of being a, you know, something that takes in carbon um, has, been a, has been really positive. Um, the second part of that is also that, you know, building materials that come from um, trees and wood are, you know, more sustainable and less carbon intensive than classic things like steel and concrete. So, you know, even if you may say, oh, well, we'd rather have, you know, timberlands that's going to last for a really long time, it's not as simple as saying, well, we'd, we'd like to have trees in there for 50 years. It might just be simpler to say, well, we can cut down this tree, which is a mature saw log at this point, use it, replant it 25 years, do the same thing again. And then in the meantime, use the wood that comes from there for to have a more sustainable building, or we can just leave it in there for 50 years and have less sustainable buildings. And I don't know how that trade-off is, but I think that's being, you know, I, I think that's being pretty actively worked on. Look, for certain, you know, for certain buildings and for certain areas, you're, you're not going to totally replace concrete and steel. And, and every, you know, building owner is looking at ways to, you know, try to get to net zero or at the very least to reduce their carbon emissions. But I think there's, be, there's become, and certainly in the last, you know, ten, five to 10 years, just a, a more widespread recognition of, you know, having wood-based building products is probably going to be a nice step towards advancing a lot of those goals. So, you know, putting those together, you know, just means people want more and more forests. Whether or not, you know, that results in, you know, being paid for carbon offsets, so you're basically being paid to not harvest your trees or other subsurface rights, I think that that might have the potential to complicate things. I don't know how many timber owners really just want to be paid to maintain a forest forever. But, you know, if you can maintain the forest and say, 
okay, I'd rather I'll hold off on my salt on my salt log harvest in year 22 and get paid something from year 22 to year 26 and then harvest it. I mean, that's basically just ancillary sources of income. I, I don't think anybody's going to complain about that. I wouldn't expect it to be extremely meaningful at all. Josh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Listeners can get access to his industry perspectives at our website, www.diamond-hill.com. Josh, thanks again, as always, for joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.